Father, we've heard once again in Sunday school of the important place of your Holy Spirit during our time of worship, our time of hearing the Word of God. Send your Spirit and your kindness to us that both speaker and hearers would be impacted by your gracious ministry, and may we worship you as we interact with the Word of God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Romans once again. We're in Romans 9 with this emphasis on God's sovereign election, where God has chosen Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and there are a host of others around them that God and his sovereignty passed over. These are sobering considerations. The will of God will be lived out in history in the midst of this uh, sovereignty of God. Remember how Paul uh, was broken in his heart and desirous for the conversion of his kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul goes on to give another illustration, as we saw last week, God showing his mercy and his compassion uh, to Moses, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart in passing over him. And this morning, we're confronted with this uh, foundational illustration of the potter and his pots, the potter and his clay. And just as you look at this picture... All of the life and all of the skill and all of the knowledge is on one side of the screen or the other. And we know where all the life and all the intellect and all of the skill resides. And it's God and it's us. Think on the great skill of the potter, where he reaches into that sinful mass of clay, and he can make a variety of pots for different uses. And if we think of that analogy, that there are some pots that are for a more dishonorable use, Which of these two vessels are you going to use to take food scraps from the kitchen and feed the pigs? Well, I think your choice is made. And then there is an honorable use, a vessel for honorable use. If the servant is going to be carrying the refuse out to feed the pigs, you may not really want the servant to even touch this one unless it's on that occasional dusting that they are to do very carefully. Well, this puts in our mind's eye something of the key illustration that is found in our passage this morning. We jump into the exposition with verse 19 and 20. Notice Roman numeral 1. The argument against God's sovereignty countered by creaturehood, O man. Here it is, first of all, A, the objection against God's sovereignty 
identified. What's the objection? It's there in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul has heard all of the objections against the gospel as he has traveled and preached. In verse 6, people have been saying, if all of the physical Jews are not saved, then the word of God has failed. Well, no, that's not true. Verse 14, if God sovereignly chooses, it's not fair. Well, no, that's not true. Now, if God, because if you've got the sinful mass of clay and you simply leave it up to all of that clay, all of that clay is not going to seek after God. There is none who does righteous, no, not one. Now, if God is sovereign, in verse 19, then God cannot hold man responsible for his sin. Man's sin is ultimately God's fault. The human heart is clever, isn't it? And it's objections that it brings against God. Pastor Elliot writes, The guilty sinner constantly tries to evade any sense of personal responsibility. Yet all the time he knows that he is responsible for his actions and will still have to answer for them at the judgment. You remember all the way back to Romans chapter 1, where they have this knowledge of God and they are suppressing it, they're holding it down? Beginning of Romans 2, they know that the judgment that they deserve is death. Romans 2.15, there's that conscience that is working in us, convicting us of our sin, making us to feel like a jerk. Well, we ought to feel like a jerk. The height of wickedness, back to Oliot, is that he will even make the sovereign election of God a reason why man should not be answerable for his actions, although God declares in his word with equal dogmatism that all men will be held responsible for everything they think, say, or do. Secondly, B. Not only the objection identified, but the objection against God's sovereignty silenced. And there it is in the beginning of verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You see, Paul does not initially answer this objection by going into a story. Well, here's my first philosophical argument against what you're thinking. And here's my second and third and fourth and fifth. Is Paul being rude to men and shutting down their objections? And I think we have to say with a little bit of a reflection, no. Those who are objecting to the potter, those who are speaking to the creator and saying, no. The way you are governing the universe is not right. Those are the individuals that are being rude 
And so the first thing that Paul attempts to do is take the rude little puny man and to put him in his place. Now, how can you do that nicely? How can you say to little man, you are not the center of the universe. You are not God. You need to get out of the God business. It seems to me that however graciously you try to word that, you're taking one with an inflated view of himself and you're trying to shrink him down to his appropriate size and man is never going to like that unless the Spirit of God is working within. Little man is a bit confused and thinks that he or she is God, and so he or she's got a right to say, well, then the Word of God fails. That's not fair. Well, at least you can't hold me accountable because my sin is actually your fault. The God who spoke the world into being is in charge. Little man needs to think in terms of when I make my own world, then I'll get to be in charge. But for now, you're living in God's world, and he gets to be in charge. Identified, secondly, be silence. Thirdly, the objection against God's sovereignty applied. Let's look at this and realize what Aliyah said is true. Yes, God is sovereign. That is true. But man is also responsible. That is taught equally as well in the Scriptures. And as we saw in 1127 of Matthew last week in our close, that Jesus is the one who chooses to reveal who God the Father is. But in the very next breath, Jesus makes this appeal. Come to me. Feel the sense of your sin and your guilt and the burden that this is, and come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. It's a decision that you have to make. You need to say, I'm willing to take the yoke of Jesus Christ and put it on me. And I'm willing to serve him. So Jesus puts that responsibility for this decision on man, and he appeals to man. Man is responsible. You're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon, his unbelief, has wandered out, and he began thinking as a man with just under the sun. Under the sun with God locked out, this is what you think. And then in all of his meanderings, he comes to his true self. In chapter 12 and verse 13, the very close of the book, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. At the end of the day, at the end of all days, 
Man is responsible to reverence God. And he is responsible to do what the Creator has told him to do. And if you sit here this morning saying, well, I am not morally responsible to the God who made me, if you don't believe that today, please understand, you will believe it in the day of judgment when God holds you accountable. And then let's think of Ezekiel 33. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and yet on the other hand, and you, son of man, say to all the house of Israel, thus you have said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Know your sin, Ezekiel is preaching. Say to them, God speaking through Ezekiel, God takes on an oath. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God takes on his oath, and God makes this appeal that is repeated, turn back, turn back. You see what God is doing. The same God who is sovereign is dealing with sinners knowing that they are responsible for their relationship to God and they need to turn from their sin and need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. At least that's the fuller information that we have in our day. He pleads with sinners to turn back and warns them of dying eternally. Roman number one then. The argument against God's sovereignty countered by creaturehood. There is God and there is man. Roman number two. The argument against God's sovereignty countered by the potter and his pots. First of all, A, a quick survey of four texts on the part of, we've read these, I'll just highlight them and learn some lessons, we'll learn some lessons from them. Isaiah 29 and verse 15, all you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the one th uh, thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Rebellious, deceitful man thinks that he can hide his life from God. That's the picture there of verse 15, isn't it? And that may be where some of you are even this morning. You do not want God to know the details of your life, and you think that you've hidden it pretty well, at least from your parents, at least from this one, at least from that one. Therefore, you must have been able to hide it from God. And the prophet says it's vain for man to upend reality 
and to think that the thing made has got more understanding than the thing that made it. No, we need to look at the screen, see the pile of the clay, and see all of the life and all of the skill and all of the knowledge is with God, the potter. And so it's vain to think that the clay can hide from God. Second passage, Isaiah 45 and verse 9 Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? And the point is, it is foolish and unreasonable for the clay to be thinking that God is not in charge. Jeremiah 18, go down to the potter's house. When you go there, I will speak to you. He goes down. He sees the potter working on his wheel. And the potter is, is working on a, on a delicate little vase. Something goes wrong. <laughs> Needs to just be put back in. You know, well, today, maybe today's not a vase day. Today is going to be a wide, flat, bowl day. That's about what my arthritis can do today. That's what the potter, the, the potter, it's up to the potter what he wants to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you? I'm sovereign in my choice. But there's something very interesting that goes along with this. Not only the sovereignty of the potter, but when God says, I'm going to tear this nation down, I'm going to bring destruction, if that nation repents, if they move away from their sin, then I'm going to forgive them. It's a wonderful example of the sovereignty of God there and the responsibility that is there on the part of man. And then as we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20, it seems that the main contrast here is that, or what I want us to get, is the honorable use and the dishonorable use. You've got an old clay pot. It's big enough that you can fit all the food scraps in it. It doesn't really matter. It's already got some dings on it, some scratches on it. So if you set it down a little rough and it gets another little bump on it, and it's nice and thick, so if you set it down on the ground hard, it's still going to last. It's not like that fine vase with all of its gold leaf painted onto it. You're not going to take that to feed the pigs. And that one pot that you use to feed the pigs, you're going to expect, oh, okay, you got another scratch on it? Well, it doesn't really matter. Oh, the handle broke today? Well, it doesn't really matter. Well, you dropped the whole thing and it broke? Well, we'll get another. We weren't planning on that one lasting forever. We weren't going to be keeping that one forever. 
But this gold vase, gold leaf on all of the handles, we are planning on keeping that in the house forever. For as long as we're around. And that's the point of the illustration. God's honorable vessels are highly prized and they will never leave God's heavenly home. The survey. And now secondly, B, the objection. The objection is likened to a pot arguing with its potter. I'm not responsible. My sin is really your fault, God. The objection is likened to a pot arguing with its potter. Latter part of verse 20. Will what is sold, molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So Paul appeals to this well-known biblical figure of the potter to show the relative rights and the authority and the power of the potter versus the clay. And all of the rights, all of the authority, are with the potter. That's what he is arguing. The potter can sovereignly choose what kind of pot he makes on Tuesday. And he may say on Tuesday, I feel like a great big pot that's going to be used for such things as carrying food scraps to the pigs. I can whip these out pretty quickly. We're going to fire it and it's going to be great. Oh, it's not even lunch yet. I can make 10 more of these. But then on Wednesday, the potter says, I'm going to make an exquisitely beautiful vase that is a work of art and will be treasured as one of my great life works. That's going to take all day to get it shaped. This could be fired, and then we're going to start the painting process, and then the, the gold that's coming on. If there's multiple fires, whatever goes into that. From the same sinful mass of clay, the potter can choose on Wednesday, I'm going to make a piece of pottery that is like Moses. And I'm going to keep him in my house for all eternity. On Thursday, God may decide to make a pot like Pharaoh. It has certain uses, but it does not have the same lasting value as an honorable vessel. Commenting again on this section, Aliot writes, God is the great unanswerable. And he puts unanswerable in caps. He's God. And part of God is God gets to speak 
and his creatures listen. His creatures don't sit around and bicker and complain about what God has done, the ways governing the universe. No, they, they just need to get with the program. God has the authority to do what he pleases with his own. It is entirely lawful for the potter to make two different sorts of vessels out of the same lump of clay if it pleases him. Now, you and I, as most of us here, have either been born here or have imbibed the American spirit that I am a free, independent individual. And I don't like Romans 9. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if you or I vote that we like it. It is God's universe. And when you make your universe, you write into it whatever laws you would like. But it's my job to help you live in the universe that you're living in. And that one happens to belong to God. Roman numeral three. The argument against God's sovereignty countered by God's threefold purpose. And now Paul gets a little more philosophical. He reasons. He doesn't just say, be quiet, old man, because there's a God. And what I need you to see as we're looking here at verse 22 through 24, I want you to see how verse 23 begins. Verse 23 is talking about Christians. It's talking about vessels of mercy. But in your version, I hope you see some words that are like, and in order that, and in order, or as the ESV has it, in order to. This is key to how these three purposes of verse 22 through 24 relate together. What he's saying about the vessels of wrath, regarding vessels of wrath, and God showing his wrath, and God showing his power, he does that in order that he could show the glory of his mercy. All right? And so we need to keep that connection in mind. The first two purposes are subservient to the third. First of all, A, God intends to demonstrate his wrath. Well, that's sobering, isn't it? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and even if we say, as many have said, well, God in his grace, that's his great work, and God in his judgment, that's his strange work, that's not really what God enjoys. It's more the heart of God to, to save. It's in the Bible. Here it is. What if God, desiring to show his wrath? Well, I don't know if I like this either. I, I think I'm going to start a petition. And I'm going to get the signatures of everybody, or at least half of the billions of people living on earth, and I'm going to collect those, I'm going to present it to God. God, we don't like you talking about wrath. 
guess what's going to happen? You're going to be dead and under God's wrath before you get those signatures collected. And if you could collect them all, God is God. And he already decided how he's going to govern his universe. So we may as well deal with it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, Psalm 5 tells us, for you're not a God, who delight, a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Regarding Pharaoh. But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Watch out, Pharaoh. God desiring to show his wrath, Revelation 14, 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever. Please remember, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. We have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why did Jesus talk more about hell than he did heaven? Did he believe in heaven? Absolutely. But he also believes in eternal judgment. Remember that Paul speaks of God's purpose of the vessels of wrath, that he's going to show his wrath. In order that, it's, we're moving to verse 23. There's a, there's a reason why he deals with his wrath for the benefit of his vessels of mercy. And how does God's eternal wrath against the wicked impact those who go to heaven? When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and the hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe when I stand before the throne dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. First of all, threefold purpose, A, to demonstrate his wrath. Secondly, B, God intends to publish his power. Second part of verse 22. And to make his power known. As we saw last week, God is quite willing to go against proud Pharaoh. For this very purpose, verse 17, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And the most powerful man on earth is taking on a fight with Jehovah when Jehovah is holding the universe together. Well, I wonder who's going to win. 
Isaiah 43 and verse 3 and 4. Listen to this carefully. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as her ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't understand a lot of what is going on in these verses. But I think I get this much out of it. That there is a special love that God has for his vessels of mercy. And he's willing to do other things with vessels of wrath, something that's going to benefit them. Am I wrong? And what we're told in the latter part of verse 22 endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, God is long-suffering toward an arrogantly rebellious Pharaoh. I mean, the first time that he started to say, who is Yahweh? He could have been gone. And how many times he watches the staff of Aaron that turns into a snake, swallows up the staff to snakes of all of the Egyptian magicians. Should have been over. But then he hardened his heart. Another miracle. And he hardened his heart against the Lord. And another miracle. And he hardened his heart. I think this is what we have going on here in verse 22, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And this display of power over someone like Pharaoh is in order that, in order that I may show my glory in these vessels of mercy. Moses, as the meekest man on the face of the earth, evidently in God's judgment, needed to go up against Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth. Think of the conflict. They, they, they took away the straw, and yet the quote is to make more bricks. And the Israelites are suffering. And Moses and Aaron go into this proud-hearted and obstinate Pharaoh, and they're telling, this is what we need you to do. We're gonna, we want to go away, and we want to go worship our God. Let my people go. Who's he going to ultimately fear? This powerful man, who we've seen what he can do, or this invisible God in heaven? So you see that for Moses' sake, for his growth in grace, there is a reason why there is a man named Pharaoh. And there's a reason why he's so proud. And there's a reason why he's so powerful and so threatening. And yet Moses and Aaron 
And a number of the Israelites said, well, well, our money's on God. I'm trusting God. And God may feel that you and I need a little exposure to a Pharaoh type of character. And there may be some proud and powerful man or woman that you're going to go up against. And they're going to be pressuring you to cave in. And like Moses, you need to be saying, my money's on the invisible God. And I'm going to trust him. But the point that I want you to see is there's, there's this connection of the vessels of wrath with the vessels of mercy. It's whatever he's doing over here, it's in order that. Here's where the real action is. And that brings us to verse 23. This is C, the third of God's purposes. God intends to publish his wonderfully glorious mercy. In order that. God has a very important intention in the first two purposes. They serve in order that. Verse 23 could come about. God wants to publish this. God has two different kinds of vessels. He's got one kind of vessel. Think of those images, whatever one you bring up. There is a vessel there that is filled with God's wrath. That's what you put in a vessel, right? You you, you put something in it, and God puts his wrath in that one. Over here is that finely decorated one. That's what you look like in glory, not what you look like here. And what does God put in this one? He puts mercy in it. God wants to publish his mercy. God plugs his nose as he works with this clay that stinks of sin. And that's the beginning of God's grace. He withholds his wrath. But God wants to publish this. He wants the whole moral universe to know what he is doing to take out of this sinful lump of clay, one that he's going to shape into a vessel of tremendous honor. So at the end of the day, he says, this is one of my life work vessels. I'm keeping that one around in heaven. There's a special word for publishing. It lies behind the make known his power in verse 22 and the make known his mercy again in verse 23. Further, as we're looking at 23, God views this purpose of mercy to be the riches of his glory. If you're a Christian, it's no small deal. If you are not a vessel that is filled with wrath, but you are a vessel that is filled with mercy, that expression of God showing his kindness to you, filling you up with mercy and grace that's going to last for all eternity, God doesn't say, eh, little deal. 
The God who knows everything says, this is the riches of my glory. You will see what kind of God I am when you consider this vessel and you consider this one and you consider the wonderful thing that I have done. Riches of glory. The riches of his glory begins with the vessel of mercy. In verse 24, he's going to speak of them as being called. And when we're hearing calling, we're right back to Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those whom he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he glorified. And guess where verse 24 ends, or verse 23 ends? these vessels which he has prepared beforehand for glory, the riches of his glory. Two different meanings of glory. The first part of verse 23 is a glory that is seen in God in showing mercy. And the latter part of verse 23, glory is the glory that is the object. That's where we are when all of our sin is taken away and all of our defects are taken away. Riches of his glory. Think of Ephesians 2 and verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Slightly different wording, not mercy, but there's grace. But it's the same riches, isn't it? The abundance of God's glory that is seen in saving. And when you read those words, the riches of his glory, if you are a child of God, if you are a vessel that contains the mercy of God, do you appreciate the riches of the glory of his grace and mercy? Probably not enough. God knows what hell is like. God knows what heaven is like. And God tells us that it's going to take eternity in order for us to figure out the greatness of the mercy that he has shown. When the praise of heaven I hear, loud as thunders to the ear, loud as many waters noise, sweet as harp's melodious voice, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show. By my love, how much I owe. There's another thing yet here in verse 24. The the vessels of mercy are identified as believers found in the church. How do I know that? Well, that's what I'm drawing out of verse 24. Even us. Paul's a believer in Christ now. He's writing to other believers in Christ at the church at Rome with the awareness that this epistle is going to pass on to other churches. 
the vessels full of mercy on the last day are the even us called. Are you a part of the even us? Has God called you into a relationship with His Son? Has God drawn you to Himself so that you have owned your sin and you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, please see, that is what is necessary for you to believe into the Lord Jesus. And as I close this morning, I want us to understand that whatever God's sovereignty means, it never means that a man or a woman is no longer responsible to repent of his or her sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw it last week with Matthew 11. Jesus says, I'm the one who chooses whether or not they know God. And yet the next breath, the next verse is, come, know the weight of your sin and the sadness that comes from that. Take my yoke and learn from me. And this week I'm going to close with another sovereignty, responsibility passage in John 6, 37. Where's the sovereignty in it? All that the Father gives me will come. Dripping with the sovereignty of God, isn't it? And then the latter part, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What's Jesus doing there? Because he knows that sinners are responsible, because he knows that you have to make a decision, he is pleading with you, the decision maker, to own your sin and to know that if you are willing to come, he's there. He's ready to receive you. But it goes on. And he says in verse 39, here's my mission. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up to the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And you see where Jesus is now. He's moved away from the sovereignty aspect and is very comfortable saying, I need you to look on the Son of Man. And I need you to believe on the Son of Man and to know that if you will take these simple steps, he will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The sovereignty of the potter. That's where all of the life, all of the skill, all of the ability is. And yet, that pile of clay, that pile of clay has got a responsibility to recognize the potter is divine, he's my God, and I want to be right with my God.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, please own your word. Make us to appreciate something. We cannot, we cannot understand these concepts. There are things that fit, that do not fit between our ears. And we acknowledge this. But at the same time, we see it plainly in the scriptures that you have given to us. And we read it. And we respond in faith and say, I believe it. Amen. This is the word of God. But help us whenever we are seeking to understand your word, to understand it not in a distorted way, but to understand it interconnected with other truth, to understand this truth of your sovereignty while always acknowledging man's responsibility. And we pray, Lord, particularly for those who sit here, those who listen in, who are not yet believers, and the devil would be seeking to confuse them and distract them. May it be abundantly plain that Jesus stands with open arms to receive anyone and everyone who would come to him for the forgiveness of all of their sins. And we pray these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen.